Hello all and warm welcomes to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that covers the more obscure and unfamiliar cases from the shores of the UK. I'm Paul, the show's creator and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and cheers as ever for you all joining me today. If you're a first-timer, then welcome aboard and I hope you find the episodes entertaining. And for die-hard listeners, then of course, it's great to have you here still and your continued support means the world. What else means the world is the continued reviews of the show and the comments that I've received on my social media from you guys. It's absolutely brilliant and it really, really does make a difference. I'd also like to pass on my kind thanks to CrimeReads.com for the show's inclusion, alongside some truly great other podcasts, in their recent list of essential true crime podcasts for summer 2018. When you see things such as these, it can really be the spur that's sometimes needed. I mean, trust me, when you write and produce a show such as this, it's incredibly time-consuming, and although we hosts love doing it, because it's why we do it after all, you do get days, of course, where you struggle to be arsed doing it, but if you read something like that, boom, it motivates you a great deal. I'm sure there are fellow hosts listening out there who agree with me there. And this also goes with a very kind continuing support on Patreon of the show. That's just as much of a motivation as well. And for anyone interested in supporting the show on Patreon, then just look up the True Crime Enthusiast there and see what being a supporter of the show has to offer. There are six monthly bonus episodes currently available for supporters, with a seventh coming in just a couple of days, plus other stuff should you be interested. And if you are, then all details can be found in the show notes alongside the show's social media links. First a word from this week's sponsor. Now it's a crazy hot summer, we've officially gone past the heatwave moniker, and summer is here. And what's better than having a beer in the summer? Well, having a free case of craft beer, that's what's better. So how would you like one? Well, because you're a listener to the show, the True Crime Enthusiast friends at Beer52, that's Beer52.com, if you go to the website and use the code CRIME, you can claim yourself a free case. Let me tell you some more about them. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer club and what they do is seek out exclusive small batch craft beers from some of the world's greatest breweries. It's a whole world of craft beer one and if you like it then I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. And as seekers out of the world's most incredible and exclusive craft beers, each month focuses on a new theme or a new country. They've had California themes, Norway themes, Belgium and Amsterdam themes to name but a few. With these different themes, you get yourself not only 8 craft beers each month, but you can also tailor the box to your preferences. So if you're not a fan of dark beer, you don't have to have it. If you only like dark beer, boom, if you ask, that's what you get. Each one can be rated and reviewed on the Beer52 website, but that's not all you get. Because beers and snacks go together, you get yourself a snack in your box to have with your beers. You also get a 100-page magazine named Ferment, which contains tasting guides, articles from some of the best writers in the beer world, and all about the beers and how they're made. And if you sign up now, you'll get a chance to try a case of the best of British beers with the Summer Bangers selection. Beer52 were kind enough to send the True Crime Enthusiast a box of the Summer Bangers, and I've got to say I was impressed with what I've got. There's a right mixed bag in there, with things like Tangerine Dream, Road Trip, Moors, and each one is individually rated and reviewed in the Ferment magazine. So if you think that sounds good, as a listener to the show, you can try your first case for free. You just pay the postage costs of £2.95, and that's not bad for eight wonderful beers. 
Ferment magazine and even a snack delivered with next day shipping. And there's no minimum commitment either. If it's not for you, then no worries. You can pause or cancel any time. Try the beers from your first case and see what you think. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash crime to claim your free case today. Now I'm pleased this week to bring you the promo from the ladies from the UK's very own Nothing Rhymes With Murder podcast. Imagine a regular jet set around the world covering crimes from each country. What a scope, a global murder trek. It's a great show with some ace episodes and the hosts work really, really hard at it. Plus kudos to them for the recently organised True Crime Charity Raffle that I'm sure many of you supported and I for one was certainly glad to get behind them and donate to it. A link to Nothing Rhymes With Murder is with my own show notes as ever or can be found on all good podcast platforms and I shall pass you over to Kate and Georgie themselves so they can let you know what they're all about. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> I'm Georgie. I'm Kate. And we are Nothing Rhymes With Murder. Murder. Each week we hit up a new country and tell each other a true crime story from it. Usually also whilst guzzling Prosecco. Past trips have led us to the vampire of Krakow in Poland, the last witch burned in Ireland and the boozing barber in Canada. We don't like to leave you on a downer though, so we will give you some fun hotspots to visit also. Absolutely, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, as well as at NRWM Podcasts on Twitter and Nothing Rhymes With Murder on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. And remember kids, life is a journey. Just don't let murder stop you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye then. Okay, bye goodbye, now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys. Go and check out their journeys. There's something for everyone there. Nothing rhymes with murder. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there are two tales, and both are some of the most disturbing and heart-wrenching that I've not only covered to date on the show, but that I've ever come across myself. They each take place within the last ten years, a case from rugby and one from Luton, respectively, and they deal with the disturbing new trends of mate crime. Now this is the process of befriending someone with the express purpose of stealing from them or abusing them, and modern slavery coupled with abuse. Please be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crime and abuse that some listeners may find distressing or disturbing, so discretion is advised as ever. As ever this isn't meant to sensationalise each story, it simply has to be the full horrific tale or nothing at all. I've entitled the episode with friends like these, and I hope that once you've heard it, you'll see why I've called it that. So with that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look at first, the tragic case of Gemma Hater. It was ten past nine on the morning of 13th of September 1982 that the Hater family welcomed their youngest daughter into the world, a welcome addition to the family that already consisted of ten-year-old Neil and seven-year-old Nicky. From the beginning, Gemma was adored by her siblings and was described as a cute baby, loving and affectionate to everybody. All the siblings were close growing up, but as time passed, Gemma's mother Sue began to have concerns about Gemma's development. Although she was a happy child, she was described by her siblings as chaotic and from an early age was very, very strong-willed. Often she seemed to be in a world of her own, completely oblivious to all around her, spaced out almost. Yet she could go from this to requiring a person's complete attention constantly. 
after some persistence from her mother too, Gemma was examined by medical professionals several times and was eventually confirmed as having a learning disability caused by a rare congenital disorder. As she grew older, this grew more noticeable physically and because she appeared different, it led to bullying in school and a difficulty for her to make friends. I'm sure we all know just how cruel kids can be. Sometimes it's out of ignorance and possibly sometimes out of fear and sometimes possibly fear of or being uncomfortable with a person who's different. Bullying only got worse over time as Gemma's condition led to weight gain and she stopped growing and a paediatrician was to diagnose her as going through the menopause which had probably begun when she was aged just 14. She was moved to a school that could better cater for her needs, but she still found it difficult to make friends and was lonely, struggling to see the world as anything except for the trusting, naive and childlike view of it that she had. But by the time she was 19, things started to change, because it was then that Gemma was offered a place at a special residential college in North Wales, which she accepted. Now this meant moving away from her hometown of Rugby in Warwickshire, where all of her family lived, but for Gemma it represented a chance at a fresh start, perhaps a move that would be the making of her. At the college she was taught to look after herself, she learned how to cook for herself, clean for herself, and look after her own personal hygiene, but perhaps most importantly, for the first time she learned how to mix with people. Gemma absolutely thrived at this college and she was happy there and she spent two years in residence there. She had the chance of a third year but her strong-willed nature come to the fore here and as it was her decision as a 22-year-old adult, she opted to leave and return home to rugby. She'd had a taste of independence now and now she wished to live alone in a flat of her own. Now her family were disappointed in this decision. They saw just how much she'd flourished while she was at the college but they respected her wish for independence and they took a step back, so Gemma returned to rugby and moved into a flat of her own. Unfortunately, Gemma did have problems coping when she was living alone. She still had this naive and almost childlike view of the world, and although she was receiving benefits, she had little concept of money and she struggled to budget. Her money would all be frittered away on things such as sweets and chocolate, and often having done so, She'd have to borrow money to top up her electricity or gas, or rely on the kindness of neighbours and her family to even feed her sometimes. A former neighbour of Gemma's, Dawn Jennings, said later, She was a lovely girl, totally innocent and childlike. She would not have hurt a fly and was a friend to all, but I did worry about how she coped. She wasn't aware of time and there was no one to tell her when to go to bed and when to have a bath. Over a period of several years, Gemma was to move from property to property in rugby several times due to interventions from private and council landlords when bills or rent hadn't been paid, or often as well due to complaints about the hygiene and cleanliness of the property. Sometimes these moves were necessary for other reasons as well. By 2008, Gemma was living in a flat in a 10-storey block on Beat Place in rugby, and some people she confided in here revealed later that Gemma had claimed she'd been moved from an almost identical tower block on the other side of rugby after she'd suffered bullying and sexual abuse while living there. There was of course a time that it was unlikely that Gemma would have been able to live independently, 
it's a good job that draconian thinking has now changed and there are more support networks in place now and people who are differently abled or with learning difficulties now have more independence and opportunity than they once did. But these don't always work and perhaps people are left alone who are sadly unable to cope despite their best attempts. But live alone Gemma did, largely friendless bar for the hamster and noisy cockatiel called Jasmine that she kept. She was a massive animal lover and she would talk to every dog or cat that came her way. In fact Gemma would talk to anybody who showed her the slightest attention. She was friendly to everyone, she craved attention and it was a trusting friendliness that was to ultimately cost her her life. Her family were overjoyed when in 2009 Gemma began talking of a new friend that she'd made named Chantelle Booth. It seemed to be the first real friend that Gemma had made since she'd been living alone in rugby, and although it's unclear when or where Chantelle and Gemma exactly met, according to Gemma's family, they soon became fast friends, and Gemma was in fact soon referring to 21-year-old Chantelle as her best friend. By all accounts, the two would spend quite a bit of time together, with Gemma being a regular visitor to the flat on Rugby's Little Pennington Street that Chantelle shared with her partner, 20-year-old Daniel Newstead and at first Gemma's family were happy because Gemma was happy but over time they began to have niggling concerns that Chantelle may have been taking advantage of Gemma tapping her up for cash which Gemma would naively give to her friend without question but that she didn't have an abundance of herself they also had deep concerns that Gemma was being made a figure of fun for her new friends and an example that made them think this was when Gemma proudly sported to her family a hand-drawn new tattoo that her friends had done for her on her wrist. It simply said in bold letters, Simon STD X. Gemma claimed that it was her new boyfriend's name, yet she didn't have a boyfriend, and she was too trusting and naive to realise that STD stood for sexually transmitted disease, which was an insult of course. How callous is that to do that? Yet her family felt a bit powerless here. Gemma was strong-willed and secretive, and even if she had herself realised that Chantelle was taking advantage or mocking her, it's unlikely that she would have said anything or confided this to her family. They as much couldn't say anything. She was loyal and overjoyed to be part of a group at last. And even though there was an age difference of several years, and regardless whether she knew or not she was a figure of fun, at least she was still part of a group. That was to change over the weekend of the 7th and the 8th of August 2010. That Saturday afternoon, the 7th of August, Gemma had called around at her mother's house as her grandmother was there. She stayed for several hours, having tea there, and then left just after tea to go home as she told her mother she was having a night out in rugby with her friends, this being Chantelle, Daniel and several others that Gemma had not yet met. We've already heard of her family's concerns here, but again they felt they had to step back and not get involved, and they waved Gemma off home, with her and her mum exchanging I love yous as she walked out. That was to be the last time Gemma was seen alive by her family. CCTV from Rugby Town Centre later showed Gemma and a group of others at 11.30pm that evening involved in a heated exchange outside a kebab shop. Well, I say exchange, it was in fact two of the group berating Gemma. 
Chantel is clearly seen looking amused at this before leading Gemma away roughly by the arm out a shot of CCTV, accompanied by another male member of the group who was later identified as 18-year-old Duncan Edwards. The rest of the group, identified as Daniel Newstead, 18-year-old Jessica Linus and 17-year-old Joe Boyer, has just seen to be stood laughing and joking for a while before they make their way after them. Skip forward now to the early morning of Monday the 9th of August 2010. An early morning jogger was out on his regular run alongside a footpath that skirted a disused railway line just outside of Rugby Town Centre when he came across a sight that stopped him in his tracks. Lying face down on the footpath was the naked body of a young woman. The body showed clear signs of having been battered severely and a black bin liner had been placed over the head and the body posed so that the feet were on the path and the rest was lying in the undergrowth. He immediately contacted police to let them know of his discovery. Senior Investigating Officer Detective Superintendent James Essex of Warwickshire Police was one of the first officers on the scene, and it was clear from first glance that this was a vicious murder. The woman had been savagely stripped and battered, and there was a vicious stab wound apparent on the back of her neck. The body was soon identified as being that of Gemma Hater, and it was left to police to break the news to her family, who were understandably shocked heartbroken and devastated. It fell to her mother, grandmother and older sister to identify her body. Gemma's brother Neil was too heartbroken to do so. Sue later said, The only way I could describe it is it was as if someone had used her face for target practice basically. From her chin to the top of her head was just black. It was just awful. With a murder inquiry launched, police wasted no time. A check of Gemma's mobile phone records showed only one constant contact, and when Rugby Town Centre CCTV was checked for over that weekend, it revealed not only the incident outside the kebab shop on the Saturday evening, but it also showed Gemma and a group of five others, all wearing hoodies, walking towards the disused railway line just five hours before her body was found. It was thought that these were the same group as seen on CCTV on the Saturday, and it was time to speak to the person Gemma was last known to have been seen with, Chantel Booth. On Tuesday the 10th of August, Chantel Booth, Daniel Newcomb, Duncan Edwards, Jessica Linus and Joe Boyer were all arrested on suspicion of the murder of Gemma Hayter and interviewed. Although each were to deny any involvement in the murder themselves, they were each to blame another member of the group in the face of the evidence, and a horrific and callous story was to emerge. By Thursday the 12th of August, all five were charged with Gemma's murder and remanded in custody to await trial. At the trial of the five at Warwick Crown Court nearly a year later in June 2011, the horrific story behind Gemma's death was to emerge, pieced together by accounts that each defendant had given. The court heard that all five defendants and Gemma had gone into Rugby Town Centre drinking on the night of the 7th of August 2010, and Gemma had annoyed the group by telling bar staff in one of the establishments that they'd been in that Chantel was only 15. It was just Gemma's idea of a joke, she was just trying to fit in, but it appeared that for some reason this joke had ruined their night, and Linus had actually slapped her for this at some point. This was before the point on CCTV where Booth was seen to drag Gemma away. This falling out was apparently forgotten by the next day, 
as mobile phone records showed a text exchange between Booth and Gemma in which Gemma was invited to go round to Booth's flat that afternoon. CCTV captures Gemma leaving her block on Beart Place that Sunday afternoon and she was picked up on various cameras on the journey making her way the mile or so to Booth's flat on foot. Once she arrived, the same group that she'd been out with the night before was there. Booth, Newstead, Linus, Boyer and Edwards, who'd all been drinking and smoking cannabis for several hours. Shortly after Gemma arrived at the flat, a £5 note went missing and Linus found it tucked behind the fridge, but mistakenly claimed Gemma had been trying to steal it. This then led to an incident being brought up from two years earlier, when Booth believed that Gemma had stolen £800 in backdated child benefit that was meant for a six-year-old son who was in care following a conviction that she'd previously received for unlawful wounding. She sounds delightful, doesn't she, by the way? This allegation of Gemma stealing money has never been substantiated, but as the issue was raised, the mood in the flat darkened. Booth became upset, and this angered not only Newcomb, who was the father of her second child, but also Edwards, with whom Booth had been swapping flirty text messages. It was then that the group began to act as what can only be described as a pack of animals. Please be advised that the following contains disturbing descriptions. Edwards began at first by hitting Gemma with pillows, but at some point she was duct taped to a chair in the room. Then Boyer and Edwards both urinated into a beer can and forced Gemma to drink it. Linus poked her in the face with a brush handle whilst Edwards beat her with a mop. All this whilst the defenceless, vulnerable woman is duct-taped to a chair. What scum. But it was to get much worse. Booth is said to have then, at some point, badly broken Gemma's nose with either a headbutt or by ramming her face, face first, into a radiator at the flat. Blood was found all over one of the radiators and Newcomb was so angry to see Gemma's blood in his bedroom when he returned inside from smoking that he punched Gemma hard in the face twice. No doubt scared, upset and in pain, Gemma is then said to have asked for someone to walk her home, but she was to remain there for hours, and in the event, all five of them went well after midnight. CCTV again captures the group of six just before 1am in Rugby Town Centre, five of them hooded, with Gemma walking at the rear. She appears in this distressing footage clearly injured, although she's got a cap pulled down low over her head, she's still seen as having a visible bloody nose and she's struggling to keep up with the rest of the group as all head towards the direction of the disused railway line. By 1.27am that Monday morning, CCTV captures now five of the group walking back into the direction of the town centre. There's no sign of Gemma. There's no sign of her because at some point, perhaps even some point on that last walk, they decided to kill Gemma. She was attacked from behind and either made to strip or perhaps stripped and was savagely beaten and stabbed at least once in the neck. Boot prints were found all over her head and body, showing the merciless attack that she'd been subjected to and for a final indignity, she had a bin liner placed over her head and was left to die. 
During the seven-week trial, the defendant's behaviour caused utter dismay to their expensively assembled legal teams. They treated the entire process as just a lark, with absolutely no respect for Gemma's family or for the court, or seemingly any awareness of the gravity of their situation. In the dock, they simply messed about, laughing, passing one another notes, and betraying not the slightest hint of concern. At one point, the judge, the Right Honourable Lady Justice Rafferty, was forced to separate them like school children and warn them that they'd be sent to the cells if they continued to misbehave. Each was to change this story several times when given evidence, but finally Linus, Boyer, Newcomb and Booth all agreed that Edwards was solely responsible, while he himself blamed the murder on Newcomb. The inconsistencies in each story were easily exposed under cross-examination, and at one point when cornered, Booth swore at a barrister, while Boyer, who in a police interview had casually referred to Gemma as that thing, claimed to have been too intoxicated to remember anything clearly about the evening. It didn't take a jury long at the end of the trial to find each of the defendants guilty, and it was only then, when the verdicts were read out, that their demeanours changed and reality hit them like a ton of bricks. The others sat emotionless while Booth and Linus screamed, cried, swore and hugged one another, their faces contorted and covered in black mascara from the tears they'd shed about their own skin. All five were found guilty of assault occasioning actual bodily harm concerning the assault in the flat and Booth, Newcomb and Boyer were convicted of murder, whilst Edwards and Linus were found guilty of manslaughter. Mrs Justice Rafferty wiped the floor with each one in turn when passing out sentence, giving Linus and Edwards sentences of 13 and 15 years respectively. Newstead was given a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 20 years, Boyer a life sentence with a minimum of 16 years, and Booth a life sentence with a minimum of 21 years. Sentencing them, Mrs Justice Rafferty said, she was hit with a mop or a broom. She was locked into a lavatory. She called out again and again for a mobile telephone, which was put down another lavatory to protect you by ensuring that she could not get help. She tagged along, battered, in pain and unsuspecting, like a faithful, loving dog as you walked her to a death. One final indignity was to come. You stripped her naked and left her body where you'd dragged it. Gemma Hater died alone. Over the years, you treated Gemma Hater like a toy to be picked up and put down, dependent, I suspect, on whether there was a gap in your miserable life which she could fill. I struggle to see how much lower you could have sunk. It is difficult to find the words to express how vile your behaviour was. The judge added that viewing the CCTV footage of Gemma's last journey became insupportable. After a while, I, for one, could not watch it, she said. She called the case a tragedy for six young people, Gemma and the five hapless, undirected, unsupported individuals in the dock, and that it was an acknowledgement that of the defendants, only one, Duncan Edwards, had a parent present at the end of the trial. The others, it seemed, had just been abandoned. In the public gallery sat a row of Gemma's family, including a mother Susan, who endured every day of the trial, and her two half-siblings, Nicky and Neil. They issued a statement after the verdict. Our Gemma was a very loving and vulnerable woman who trusted everyone, and her trust in nature and vulnerability led to a death on 9th of August last year. 
Our family has found the last year, and especially the last seven weeks, incredibly difficult, and today we welcome the jury's verdict. Now our family can finally move on and hopefully do whatever we can to help prevent anything like this happening again to another vulnerable adult in the future. Following Gemma's death, a serious case review was commissioned by the Warwickshire Safeguarding Adults Board. When it was concluded, and links to the findings are with the show notes this week, it was found that care workers and other agencies missed a number of chances to intervene in Gemma's case. While the report found no evidence that Gemma's murder could have been predicted, it highlighted an overall lack of thoroughness and information sharing that led to a number of missed opportunities to find out what was happening more generally in her life and the company that she was keeping. The independent chair of the case review, Cathy McAteer, said in conclusion that better support for Gemma could have made her less likely to fall into the company of people who presented her with serious risks. None of the agencies involved with her case knew the details of her relationship with the killers. There had been a clear evidence that Gemma was susceptible to abuse, as it was known she'd suffered mate crime regularly over some time, McAteer added, although none of this was carried out previously by the five. She said, No single agency had a full picture of what was happening in Gemma's life. There were a number of missed opportunities for initiating safeguarding procedures, assessments or other interventions, and for agencies to share information. Gemma wanted friends and a social life, and this case raises wider issues nationally about community safety for single adults who may be vulnerable to disability-based harassment, hate, or mate crime and exploitation. Gemma's family said that they had constantly asked for help. In a statement, they said, We are devastated both with the findings and that such negligence on the part of some of the agencies could and did happen. We thank those agencies who did listen and act, in fact bent over backwards to try and help Gemma. If they'd been listened to, perhaps Gemma would not have been in the position she found herself in when she died. We hope the recommendations put forward by this review will be put into place and adhered to, and that in future no other adult or child, their families or carers, will have to suffer the worries and fears that we've had to for the past 27 years. If this review does not help others in the same position, it would only make Gemma's death even more pointless. Warwickshire County Council apologised, saying that it hoped to learn lessons from the report and had already implemented changes, including restructuring adult disability services and new guidance for helping vulnerable people where there's no formal diagnosis for their condition. Wendy Fabro, Head of Care Services at the Council, said, while the report has found that Gemma's murder could not have been prevented, we are sorry that Gemma did not receive more support to help her live a better life. We apologise sincerely for the failings identified in the report and are determined to do everything we can to work with other agencies and the community to improve the safeguarding of vulnerable adults. This complex case raises the challenge for all local authorities on how to safeguard vulnerable adults who have the right to make their own decisions and may not always accept support. So what would have appeared a large support network seemingly failed to function once Gemma had reached adulthood and began to live on her own because then she became the easiest target for scum such as Booth and her friends. The actions and contempt of this five are just evil beyond words. I found the whole episode difficult to write in a non-biased way 
and I really have struggled to deliver the cold hard facts clearly and impartially, because I'm so sickened by actions such as these. What kind of life do you have to have or come from to be not phased at all about cruelty that you've committed such as these five did? To refer to a person you've just horrifically abused, tortured and murdered as that thing, and to laugh and joke whilst details of the horrific abuse and murder that you have committed are read to a court, well you're so far out of touch that I doubt there's a possible way back for you. This can't be blamed on drink or drugs either. This is a pack mentality and it's nothing short of bloodlust. Not one of this five have ever expressed any remorse or explanation of their actions, yet they've bleated for their own skins and each have appealed the court's decision and quite rightly, each appeal has been turned down. Even after the passage of time, each one still has a severe minimum prison sentence in front of them, and time will tell should the enormity of what they've done and the devastation that they've caused weigh on them and they may one day feel remorse. I doubt this, I doubt that each of these five creatures is anything but a lost cause, because I don't think they can understand the concept of remorse. But what are the many other Gemma haters living out there? Because her case, sadly, isn't unique. The charity Mencap estimates that 9 out of every 10 people with a learning disability are verbally harassed or exposed to violence at some time because of their disability. And in Gemma's case, this exposure to violence led to murder, committed by creatures who saw her as not even being human, nothing more than a figure of fun to be laughed at, abused and ultimately killed for their entertainment. And although you may have found Gemma's case shocking, Around the same time that Gemma was just beginning to have some independence and was starting to live alone in Rugby, just over 50 miles away in Luton, an equally, if not sadder and more disturbing case was also unfolding. The second case looked at in this week's episode is as outlined at the start, one of the most distressing cases covered to date on the show, and it contains disturbing accounts of crimes, so discretion again please guys. The second story this week looks at the case of Michael Gilbert. Michael Gilbert was born in Luton in 1982 into a challenging childhood. He was one of several children and in a dysfunctional household where money was tight at home, parts of Michael's early life were spent in the care system. Several incidents were to stand out in his early and troubled adolescence. An accusation of alleged sexual assault was made against him by his own sister, when he was aged just 11 in 1993, and he was placed in a children's home for a substantial period of time following this. Gilbert's sister was to admit later that she made up this allegation just to get herself removed from the dysfunctional family home. But it's a sad fact that mud sticks, and this allegation shaped his life to come, being possibly the cause of his eventual estrangement from his family. Michael's caseworker at the children's home that he was at at the time the Brambles Children Home in Luton, remembered him as being the fall guy for other children and someone who just wanted to fit in. It was whilst living here, during a period that Michael was in the care system, that he was to meet two people who were to later on be major figures in his life, James Watt and Natasha Oldfield. Though Michael or anyone could not have known at the time just how much and exactly what kind of role they would play. Being the fall guy and the butt of jokes was a pattern which was repeated throughout Michael's schooling. At age 13, a medical condition he developed meant that he had to undergo a mastectomy, 
and because of this, plus the false allegation of sexual assault against him, meant that he was bullied relentlessly at the school that he attended, Halyard High School in Luton. Michael was an intelligent pupil, but he unsurprisingly lacked confidence in himself, and he preferred his own company to that of others, instead enjoying computer games, football and reading by himself. But he wasn't completely friendless, however. One of his best friends at the time was Richard Armstrong. Remembering Michael, Mr Armstrong said, He was a loner, he had a lot of problems with bullying as a 15 or 16 year old. It was horrible stuff, names drawn on him, he just sat there and took it all. He had a difficult upbringing, he could be clever, he just struggled. He was a very, very private kind of guy. On leaving school with no qualifications, Michael drifted around Luton. He tried a few jobs, including working as a door-to-door salesman with a company called Anglian Windows, but eventually failed in that. He was described as too immature, trusted and naive, with his family saying that he never really grew up, and even into adulthood, he was more like a young adolescent. More than one report available claims Michael had learning difficulties, and other descriptions such as troubled, easily led and vulnerable are also commonplace. Michael started to offend as a youth, and by the age of 18 he'd racked up several criminal convictions and cautions for offences including theft, shoplifting and assault of a minor, and was to spend time in both a young offenders institution and an adult prison. Following his release from one of these sentences, Michael was unemployed with nowhere to stay. Although his mother Rosie and several brothers and his sister lived in Luton still, he was partly estranged from them at this time. He spent a period of time homeless, and then by chance met up again with James Watt, who by that time was Michael's sister's boyfriend. James Watt was the eldest son of a family that was described by later reports as a caricature of the neighbours from hell, and Luton's most antisocial neighbours. You know the type, I'm sure that every town or area has at least one you can think of, well, the Watt family were Luton's. The Watt children, like Michael, were periodically placed in care also when either the parents couldn't be bothered with them, or social and educational services had intervened. Yet they all returned to this clan household each time they came out. The family were forced to move around Luton several times over the years due to their abusive behaviour to the neighbours wherever they lived, terrorising the neighbourhoods they found themselves in with violence and intimidation. They were evicted at least four different times over an eight-year period, but they always managed to find an unsuspecting private landlord to rent from, and so moved and the cycle began again, making trouble and living in absolute squalor a filthy mess of rubbish, and a large number of illegal and banned pit bull dogs, and several snakes and giant lizards that the Watts kept. Yet wherever they went to live, the house was known as an open house for the local scum of the earth to come and treat as their own, and it was constantly full. The Watts were known and feared wherever they were living for carrying around knives and baseball bats, which they claimed was for their own protection, and several neighbours who dared complain or challenge the Watt family found themselves on the receiving end of their criminality and unwanted harassment. Bedfordshire police had cause to visit the Watt household no less than 112 times due to complaints received about them or to serve arrest warrants for one or another of the Watt children. When they were evicted from their council house in Halyards Close before moving to Marlborough Road, 
It even took police in riot gear and several RSPCA vans to clear them out. They were that much trouble. Council tenant Ian Head moved into the house after the Watts had moved out and said later, The house was just a shell, just a disgusting mess of a place. The floors were dirty, the walls were dirty, the back garden was just wrecked. So you get the kind of picture that I'm talking about here, I'm sure. Because Michael's sister Patricia went out with James Watt, and Michael knew him from the children's home, he considered James Watt to be a friend. Their relationship can only be classed in the loosest possible term as friendship. Watt more likely tolerated Michael, used him as a dog's body, he stole from him and abused him. Yet to the vulnerable and friendless Michael, he was willing to put up with all of this just to have some sort of friend. A friend who had convictions for threatening his mother with a knife and assaulting his disabled uncle, as well as theft, burglary, assault, and these were just some of James Watt's 21 different convictions. Like the predator that sees its prey, Watt recognised the vulnerability here in Michael, so he befriended him and Michael was invited to live with the Watt family at Yeovil Road in Luton, a council semi in a road plagued by graffiti and vandalism where they were living at the time. Michael's sister Patricia also lived here, as she was, of course, James Watt's girlfriend. The household at the time consisted of Watt's mother, Jennifer Smith Dennis, her husband Antonio, and James's brothers Richard, Colin and Robert. A succession of various girlfriends of each brother in turn also periodically lived in the household, so it was always full to the rafters. And like each house the Watt family lived in, it was soon run into the ground, it was trashed, it was left squalid, so much so that one report states that bars of soap were actually pushed through the letterbox by neighbours. This shows the regard that people had for them, but despite all of these warning signs, Michael accepted the offer to go and live with the Watt family. He paid rent to Jenny Smith Dennis for his keep, got himself a girlfriend who lived nearby and became well known to others in the street. The Watts were evicted from here in September 2002 following a series of complaints about their behaviour. They subsequently moved into a house in Russell Street in Luton and Michael went to live with them there too. So it shows just what kind of a desperately sad home life he must have had to accept to go and be adopted into such a crowded, squalid, troublesome household. He did have a habit of drifting away from his family, going missing and voluntarily absenting himself from his family's lives. Perhaps each time he went, he saw a chance for himself to try and make a happy fresh start by leaving all of this dysfunction behind. But there was to be no happy fresh start for Michael, and certainly not here because the horrific abuse of him began shortly after, although when exactly cannot be pinpointed. Why is even more difficult to estimate. It can only be for his meagre benefit money, or worse, for the Watt family's own sadistic amusement and pleasure. One source even claims that relations between Michael and the Watt family changed when James Watt was told of an allegation concerning Mr Gilbert's past, although what exactly this was can only be surmised at. The following descriptions of abuse and criminal activity are not designed to shock. It's necessary to be so graphic, just so you get the idea of what kind of depraved people we're talking about here. But it does contain descriptions of crime and abuse that some listeners may find very disturbing or upsetting. So once again, discretion is advised. 
At some point early on during his stay at Russell Street with the Watt family, the abuse of Michael began. Although he was tall and well-built, he was vulnerable and emotionally immature, and he was to suffer horrific physical and demeaning mental abuse at the hands of the entire Watt family, but most especially at the hands of his so-called best friend James, who became Michael's main tormentor. At different times, Michael was stabbed with different sharp objects, he was made to stand against the wall and was shot repeatedly in the lower back with an air rifle, was beaten with sticks and bats, was forced to stand barefoot in boiling hot water, was stripped and had his pubic hair sprayed with air freshener and set alight, and was led around the house like a dog with pliers attached to his testicles. If he ever tried to defend himself against these attacks or resist them, he was beaten and abused much more severely, if you can believe that and after a while he learned to say nothing and to sadly just accept this abuse, totally broken. Michael's own sister Patricia, who still lived there despite all this, even experienced the abuse herself at times, although on a scale nowhere as near as bad as this. She was later to describe on one occasion having an empty aerosol can thrown at her, and when Michael challenged this and tried to stand up for his sister, he was slapped across the face by James Watt who screamed at him to shut the fuck up, then launched into a severe beating on him. Unbelievably, she lived in this environment for a year, but by that time could stand it no more and ended the relationship with James Watt and moved out. She did not ever say anything to police or a family out of fear of reprisal from James Watt and fear of the abuse of Michael escalating. If it could escalate, can you believe that? Michael throughout all his time with the Watt family claimed unemployment benefit, but the Watt family took Michael's benefit money for themselves, referring to him as their cash cow, and they forced him to do all of the cooking and cleaning for them in the house. His own family rarely saw him over time, as he tended to keep a distance from them, perhaps voluntarily through his estrangement, or perhaps by force from the Watt family in case he said anything about their actions. His mother Rosalie later told that when Michael did visit the family, which was only very rarely, when he did he was often bruised and battered. He'd make excuses that he'd been in an accident or a fight and was fine really, and she claims that she begged him to come home each time, but he would always refuse. Michael seemed unable to stand up for himself, she claimed, but he refused to report the abuse, for because as he told police during an unrelated matter, it will just be worse for me in the long run. Such a sad statement that, isn't it? However, he did on occasions manage to escape and break away from this cycle of abuse at the hands of the Watts, and he travelled to Lancashire and Cambridge, staying at hostels and with various placement families. And each time, the Watt family tracked him down by contacting the job centre and quoting Michael's national insurance number, pretending to be him to find out where he needed to go and sign on and then they simply waited outside the place for him to come and sign on, and bundled him into a car each time, and took him back to Luton. James Watt was described on these occasions as being obsessed with finding Michael whenever he escaped, and he stepped up the abuse to an even more horrendous level when he was brought back. Michael didn't protest on these occasions, and witnesses said he appeared to go willingly, but he looked extremely frightened. On one occasion... This was witnessed by a friend of Michael's named Darrell Everest, who said he looked petrified. 
James Watt had found him again outside a Cambridge job centre after one of these rare escapes and bundled him straight into a car. He'd be forced to take part in some of the Watt brothers' criminal activities and by 2006 he was even jailed for a short time after taking the blame or being made to for one of these crimes. Outsiders often mistook him for one of the Watt brothers but it was obvious even to the casual observer that he was frightened of them and only spoke when spoken to. The Watt family would take Mr Gilbert with them fishing on Sunday mornings and on at least one occasion he was made to travel in the car boot with the fishing gear. Yet heartbreakingly, despite all that they put him through, when he was asked once by Richard Watt why he never complained about them, Michael replied, I love you lot, you are my family. This family that Michael loved so much, thought so much of him in return, that on one occasion he was forced, after one of his escapes and following a savage beating, he was forced to goad one of the Watts pet lizards until it savagely attacked him. Just let that sink in there. So we've established that each time Michael made one of these moves to get away, and was, for want of a better word, recaptured, the level of abuse not only continued, it escalated if you can believe that. Michael's clothes were now taken away from him and he was forced to wear just boxer shorts around the house. He continued to be treated as a slave and was rarely fed. He was made to drink his own urine on several occasions and often had snooker balls thrown at and dropped onto his testicles. And aside from this degradation, the straightforward beatings and humiliations continued, the majority of which were captured on mobile phone. There's an example of one of these videos in a disturbing piece of news footage concerning the case that is readily available online. I do advise that it is disturbing to watch though. I urge that in the strongest possible way I can. And by all accounts, this is one of the more sanitised videos. Each night, Michael was even made to sleep on a filthy mattress underneath James Watt's bed, handcuffed or chained to the frame to prevent him escaping. Quite often, James Watt and his new girlfriend Natasha Oldfield, the other person who Michael had met in the children's home and who by now had moved into the household, would have sex whilst Michael lay chained underneath the bed. Oldfield now comes into this horrific story as a character as she took over as one of Michael's main abusers. Diary records that Oldfield kept show that she invented a sick game show where friends could actually pay to assault Michael for set amounts of money, charging £5 for a slap, £10 to punch him, £15 to kick him, and £25 for a headbutt. Oldfield had worked this sickening catalogue out in a lengthy written diatribe and wrote it all up in a notebook, the last entry simply saying, Gilbert ends up dead. It's unclear, but very, very likely, that the sickening acts depicted in this planned game show were actually performed or at least practiced. Some of the attacks were also indeed filmed as we've said and the footage was to later form part of the evidence that would eventually be used in court to convict Michael's abusers. Oldfield also created a new punishment where Michael was also forced to lie on his back whilst people jumped on his stomach with both feet and he was also forced to hold a piece of wood in his mouth which James Watt would do press-ups off. Unbelievably, this horror continued for a large number of years without any intervention. A number of years. 
Michael himself would never press any charges, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of misguided loyalty, perhaps because he was a virtual prisoner in the household. I mean, how else can you class a person who is kept chained up each night? Yet it transpired later that on at least three occasions that were documented, Michael had spoken of the levels of abuse that he'd suffered to authority figures and to the police, but he'd refused to make an official complaint, again perhaps out of fear, quoting himself, knowing that it would be worse for me in the long run. As a result of this, the chances to stop this abuse were missed or not followed up, and through an appalling catalogue of mistakes, misinterpreted information and incorrect details being taken, this abuse was left unchallenged and allowed to continue, which it did, and it got worse if anything. The worst abuse, yeah, worst abuse, allegedly came in the final months leading up to January 2009, where Michael was thought to have suffered serious assaults, as bad as if not worse than depicted here, on a daily basis from the beginning of November 2008. Michael had attended the local job centre on the 16th of January 2009 to collect his benefits, the one day each week where he was allowed clothes and to go out, and a staff member there noted how he appeared to be in terrible pain, limping and obviously covered in cuts and bruises. When asked if he was okay, he played off these obvious injuries as being the result of being in a fight, an excuse that he'd used many times before. He declined an offer of medical assistance, collected his unemployment benefit and left the premises. This was the last time that Michael was seen alive by anyone, except for his killers. Back at the squalid dirty house in Marlborough Road, a different address yet again as the Watts had once again been evicted, but still overrun with dogs, reptiles and various people who can at best be described as the scum of the earth. It was again on this evening that Michael was ordered to lie on the floor whilst James Watt placed a piece of wood in between his teeth and performed press-ups to show off. Then 21 stone Natasha Oldfield began jumping with both feet on Michael's stomach, using him as a kind of trampoline, which paved the way for the others to soon join in. These others included Richard Watt, Robert Watt and Richard's girlfriend Nicola Roberts, who were all also regular abusers of Michael. Don't you just shake your head at the kind of subhuman scum that can do something like that for kicks to laugh about? Later that same evening, Michael's stomach began to swell severely and he was doubled up in pain on the bathroom floor, unable to walk and with his bowel ruptured. One of the Watt brothers, Colin, who'd actually moved out of the household several weeks before as he was unable to bear the abuse and violence being forced on Michael for any longer, visited the family home that evening and found Michael lying on the bathroom floor. He was barely conscious, he was lying in his own blood and excrement and he was unable to move. Yet no medical care was offered, no ambulance was contacted and instead Michael was just dragged to the filthy mattress that he slept on underneath James Watt's bed and he was left there, though it's unclear exactly by whom. Sometime during that night, the 21st of January 2009, Michael Gilbert died alone and in agony of internal injuries on that filthy mattress underneath James Watt's bed. When Michael was discovered dead the next morning, the Watt family and Oldfield panicked, not out of remorse for the abuse that as an understatement had finally gone too far, but panicked for their own skins. 
Robert Watt then called his brother Colin and asked him to come over. He had just one thing to tell him. We've killed Michael. Michael wasn't even allowed dignity in death. The two elder Watt brothers, James and Richard, together with their girlfriends Natasha and Nicola Roberts, then began to dismember Michael's body in an upstairs room of the house. His body was unceremoniously hacked up, the pieces were then placed into a large builder's rubble bag and a smaller one, and flagstones were collected from the wall of the front garden. All four then loaded the remains of Michael's body into the boot of Nicola Roberts's Ford Escort car, and then drove to a local beauty spot 14 miles away nicknamed the Blue Lagoon, a privately owned flooded former quarry in the nearby town of Arlesey. They parked up, and using a wheelbarrow that they'd also brought with them, they then transported Michael's remains a mile down to the lake and dumped the body parts into it, using the flagstones they'd collected to weight the body parts down. The four then left in good spirits, unfazed by what they'd done, and panic over, now thinking they'd got rid of any trace of Michael Gilbert forever. Because of Michael's history of alienating himself from his family, he was never reported as missing by them. He wasn't reported as missing by anyone. How tragic and telling is it that he wasn't even missed until police came knocking on his mother's door to inform her that her son was dead nearly four months after he died. They came knocking on her door because it was nearly four months later, on the 10th of May 2009, that two men out walking a dog made a horrific discovery on the side of the Blue Lagoon Lake. A large rubble bag and wheelbarrow had washed up, and inside the bag the men could make out recognisable, but discoloured, human body parts. Whilst one of them went to fetch police, the other remained with the discovery until police arrived, and they took a look inside the bag. It contained the torso, left forearm, severed hands, and lower legs and feet of Michael Gilbert. A murder investigation was immediately launched, codenamed Operation Pinlock, and the remains were soon identified as that of Michael due to DNA testing. Because of his criminal record, his DNA was on file and proved to be a match for the body parts fished out of the Blue Lagoon. A post-mortem examination was to determine several injuries still visible on the body parts that were recovered. There were several air gun pellets still embedded in the lower back of the torso, and a stab wound was found to the heart, inflicted after death, perhaps to ensure that Michael was actually dead. Or perhaps more unimaginably and horrifically, one final further act of defilement upon him for enjoyment. When the news was broken to his family, who he was estranged from now to the point where they hadn't seen him in several months, it was then that they were able to give police information and the finger of suspicion was pointed at the obvious suspect in the murder, the Watt family. When it was established that Michael had been living with the Watts, detectives then turned their attention to the family who it was known that Michael had been living with. Despite them collectively coming out with a story that they'd not seen Michael since the end of 2008, that he hadn't lived with them since then, and they had no idea where he was, this wasn't believed, and it was soon proved to be an outright lie. Witnesses were found and spoken to who could pinpoint Michael at the Watt House, or with the Watts, at least up to mid-January 2009. Also, a check with the Benefits Office revealed that up to at least the 21st of January that year, the Watt family address had been the one that Michael had been given when he collected his unemployment benefit. This made police scrutinise the Watt family and their known associates, 
and it was then that the tales of the abuse of Michael began to come to the ears of detectives. Eventually they started hearing tale after tale about the extent of this whole unbelievable and sickening catalogue of abuse. Visual evidence of this was also soon available, because the abusers had filmed much of it on mobile phones, and videos of the abuse were doing the rounds. Several people that had shared the sickening videos through messaging or online were found to still have copies of them, and these were seized by police. It was also then that checks revealed the three occasions that allegations of abuse had been spoken about to authorities by Michael, but because none had ever been made official, tragically and shamefully, none were ever pursued. There was also a trove of evidence discovered at the house that firmly pointed the finger at the Watts' culpability in Michael's murder. Outside the house in Marlborough Road, it was noticed that two coping stones were missing from the top of a garden wall. What may have seemed insignificant in a run-down area, a coping stone had been found inside the wrapping around the body parts when, it was when they were fished from the lake, used obviously to weight the body parts down. The stone retrieved was found to have come like a jigsaw piece from the wall. Outside the house, police also found remnants of a carpet that had been left outside. A closer examination revealed that it had been heavily bloodstained and attempts had been made to clean it before these were abandoned and the carpet simply ripped up and removed. It was later determined to have come from the bedroom that James Watt had in the house and the blood was determined to have belonged to Michael Gilbert. Police then turned up more vital evidence when it was discovered that a traffic camera had captured Nicola Roberts's Ford Escort car in the area of the Blue Lagoon just before 1.30pm on the afternoon of January 22nd, 2009. Police now knew Michael's remains were in the boot of the vehicle at the time. Cell site analysis of mobile phones from masts in the area on that day showed that phones belonging to both James Watt and Richard Watt leaving Luton and heading to the vicinity of the lake. Records showed the brothers in the area of the lake again later that same afternoon, and just before 5pm the same day, a police traffic camera again captured the Ford Escort heading towards the Blue Lagoon. The remains had been discovered on the afternoon of May the 10th, and the following day, police released the news to the media that the body parts of an unknown person had been found in the Blue Lagoon. Police inquiries revealed that the same morning, James Watt had been behind the wheel of his black Renault McGann when it was picked up on AMPR as he drove family members to the lake where they watched police officers searching for further remains. It didn't take long for arrests to be made as there were no other serious suspects in the case and just two days after Michael's body was washed up, James and Richard Watt were both arrested. Two days later, Robert Watt, Natasha Oldfield and Nicola Roberts were also arrested in connection with the murder. Charges of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice were arranged and the Watt brothers were held in custody. By Thursday the September the 3rd, 2009, James Watt, Richard Watt and Robert Watt all appeared before Luton magistrates charged with murder, familial homicide and perverting the course of justice. Now, familial homicide was introduced as part of the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act 2004, and it served to close a bit of a loophole that meant that cases previously where there had been those who were jointly accused of the murder of a child or a vulnerable adult had before 
remained silent or blamed each other, had failed to gain justice for the victim, and this form now puts clear legal responsibility on adults having frequent contact with a child or vulnerable adult to be able to take reasonable steps of protection if they knew or should have known that the child or vulnerable adult was at significant risk of serious physical harm from members of that household. Nicola Roberts and Natasha Oldfield also appeared the same day charged with familial homicide and perverting the course of justice. The following day, the father Antonio Watt and the trio's mother Jennifer Smith Dennis also appeared charged with familial homicide and two counts of perverting the course of justice. The three Watt brothers were remanded in custody while their parents and the two girls were granted conditional bail until a hearing at Luton Crown Court on Monday the 7th of September. It was at this hearing that charges of murder were also levelled against Oldfield and Roberts. When the trial of all involved began in March 2010 at Luton Crown Court, all bar Richard Watt had decided to plead not guilty to all charges against them. Richard Watt had originally decided to plead the same as the rest, but he changed his plea and admitted the charge of familial homicide. In February 2010, He'd led detectives back to the Blue Lagoon and had pointed out where his brother James had thrown a bag into a lake, the holdall that contained Michael Gilbert's head and his unyet recovered other body parts. Police divers quickly located it, weighted down with the other missing coping stone from the garden. The pathologist who had examined Michael's remains, Dr Nathan Carey, gave evidence telling that he'd discovered saw-like cuts on the body parts recovered from the lake. Dr Carey said that the body parts were in an advanced state of decomposition which made assessment of internal organs and bruising marks more difficult. He found evidence that soft tissue had been cut with a sharp object like a knife but also marks indicating that a saw, a meat cleaver or a hatchet had been used to cut through bone and to sever the head. Three stab wounds were found on the torso and internal injuries to the stomach and intestine were found to correspond with the account of people jumping on Michael's stomach. The aorta artery had been pierced and this would have been quite capable of causing death due to rapid internal bleeding. However, he couldn't say if the stab wounds had been inflicted before or after death, claiming that either the stab wound or the internal damage could have been capable of causing death, but added, that's not to say that was the cause of death. He also gave evidence supporting the level of torture and abuse, detailing how he'd found air gun pellets in Michael's body during the post-mortem examination. Colin Watt was another brother who gave evidence, although one who did not face any charges before him. He told the jury that he'd moved out of the family home shortly before Michael's death, and he said that he'd witnessed increasing violence towards Michael by members of his family, and that by January 2009, Beatings would take place day and night, and there would be occasions after these where Michael could only crawl to move around. He said, He was turning a totally different colour. It made me feel ill. I thought, I can't take no more of it. I'm going. Colin told the court that on the morning Michael was found dead, Robert Watt had rang him and asked him to go home because they had something to tell him. Robert said, We killed Michael. I just walked out crying. Michael's sister Patricia Bussey told the court that she'd suffered violence at the house on occasion while she lived there, telling them on occasion that she'd been hit with a can during the year that she'd lived with the Watts at the house on Yeovil Road. She told jurors, It started off alright but after a while it got violent. 
I was hit with a can of hairspray and Michael was there and said that it was uncalled for. He was told to sit down and shut up. Then James smacked him across the face and started beating him. She said while she was in the house, she witnessed Michael being assaulted by various Watt family members. He wouldn't talk about it at all. I tried to speak to him, but he would not really answer me. I didn't call the emergency services because I did not want to make it worse for him while he was still in that household. Andrew Jeffries QC, defending James Watt, suggested that Patricia had never been the victim of any violence herself and had indeed joined in in the violence inflicted on her brother. She said that this was untrue. But the most powerful evidence against the family was provided by Richard Watt and left it in no doubt that James Watt and Natasha Oldfield were the main instigators. Admitting familial homicide, Richard Watt told Luton Crown Court the catalogue of abuse that has been depicted throughout this episode and that in the last few days of his life he knew Michael Gilbert was seriously ill after beatings by the family. His girlfriend Nicola Roberts, who weighed about 18 stone herself, 21 stone Natasha Oldfield and James Watt would take turns to jump on Michael's stomach. In the days following this abuse, Michael's stomach swelled so much that he looked pregnant and he was soiling himself. Richard Watt said that he died soon afterwards, between the 21st and the 22nd of January 2009. Watt, who also admitted perverting the course of justice, told the court that he was afraid what his brother James would do if he got help for Michael, and he was warned by his mother to think of the outcome. When he spoke to James, his brother gave him a mouthful and told him to keep out of it, he said. Richard said James Watt was a control freak and become obsessed with finding Michael on the occasions that he managed to escape. But the most tragic evidence in the trial came when Richard Watt recalled the conversation that he'd had with Michael, the one I recounted before when Richard Watt said, One day I said to him, why are you putting up with it? And he said to me, I love you lot, you're my family. Summing up for the prosecution, Stuart Trimmer QC said, All in that household knew of his situation and most took part in the abuse. None of the defendants took any action to prevent what was an escalating level of abuse that eventually led to his death. He was kept, amongst other things, to take his benefit money. He was abused and assaulted, in reality, for entertainment. He was burnt, beaten, his body still had air gun pellets in it when it was taken from the lake. On Friday the 23rd of April 2010, a jury of six men and six women reached their unanimous verdict after deliberating for 26 hours. James Watt, Natasha Oldfield and Nicola Roberts were all convicted of Michael's murder. Robert Watt and Jennifer Smith-Dennis were both convicted of familial homicide. Antonio Watt was cleared of the only charge that he faced, conspiracy to pervert the course of justice by misleading police about the last time that they'd seen Michael alive. Oldfield and Jennifer Smith-Dennis were also convicted of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice by disposing of the body. James Watt, Richard Watt and Robert Watt had all pleaded guilty to this offence. Nicola Roberts and Jennifer Smith-Dennis were also convicted of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice by lying to police and Natasha Oldfield was convicted of assisting an offender by booking a hotel room for James Watt. Judge John Bevan QC said that the jury had had to listen to ghastly evidence and said that they never need serve on another jury in their lifetime. 
Sentencing was deferred until Monday the 26th of April, and on that day, Mr Justice Bevan told all of the accused, I don't think I have ever seen a case involving cruelty and violence involving group entertainment as this grotesque story is revealed. It was positively barbaric in today's society. I cannot understand how this grotesque situation was allowed to continue. Michael Gilbert may have had many faults, but that was no reason to treat him as a plaything for your enjoyment and entertainment. He was treated as a dog's body. His life was a misery. It was as desperate and disparate a situation as one can imagine. James Watt, Natasha Oldfield and Nicola Roberts were all jailed for life. James Watt was told that he would serve a minimum of 36 years. The judge explained that he was not issuing a whole life tariff to him as he would clearly see it as a badge of honour. And when James Watt received his sentence, he smirked and actually said, Cheers to the judge. Oldfield was told that she'd serve a minimum of 18 years and Roberts a minimum of 15. James's brother, 20-year-old Robert Watt and Jennifer Smith Dennis were jailed for 8 years and 10 years respectively for familial homicide. Richard Watt, who had previously pleaded guilty to familial homicide, was sentenced to 6 years in prison. Speaking outside court, Michael Gilbert's mother, Rosalie White, said the family were pleased with the result, but that nothing would bring a son back. The 31-year-old son, Chrissy, added, This is justice for Michael. It's been a traumatic time for our family, and nothing will bring Michael back, but let's hope this will save other people from violent behaviour. Also outside court, the senior investigating officer on Operation Pinlock, Detective Chief Inspector John Humphreys, said, we're very pleased that this has come to a successful conclusion. I think the sentences accurately reflect the nature of the violence that was meted out over the course of the last 10 years. The words that stick in my mind from the judge are grotesque and depraved over the nature of the behaviour that led to Michael's death. It was the most serious and long-standing series of abusive incidents that have led to someone's death that I have seen in 26 years police service. Both cases featured in this episode are two of the most tragic and horrendous that not only have I ever researched for the show, but I've ever come across in my many years interested in true crime. The actions of those involved in the abuse and murders of both Gemma and Michael are nothing short of barbaric and absolutely sickening. And in my opinion, both cases highlight failings of a duty of care from powers that be for both of them. I know that you can't wipe out or foresee evil actions from people, but I found it clear in each case that both Gemma and Michael were classed as vulnerable adults, and so the support network should have firmly been in place for each, which it appeared it wasn't. Following the perpetrators in each case being convicted, independent inquiries into each case were undertaken and published upon conclusion. Links to the published findings in each case are reproduced with the show notes this week, and they make for quite telling reading. Each is a bit of a lengthy read, but I do invite you to have a look and see for yourselves. I hope listening to the episode today spurs you on to do that. Now whilst crimes such as these are of course unacceptable against anyone, they seem a level even more evil and callous when the victim, a word that I try never to use on the show but one that I feel is most apt here, is a vulnerable person. These are people that should be looked after and cared for, not befriended as some sort of cruel joke or for the express purpose of being a cash cow for another. 
and certainly not as a plaything for several to degrade and torture and abuse at will. Gemma's family seemed to be a loving one and, rec- and respected her independence, however difficult it was for them to do that, and you can see how they were placed in a bit of a difficult position here. You've got to give independence, of course, and it must be hard to discourage a loved one having a friend, despite your own misgivings about that person, if it's the only friend that they have. And of course, who can really expect people to behave in a pack mentality such as Chantel Booth and the cronies? I mean, actions like that are like something out of a horror film, aren't they? I really do feel for Gemma's family here, but Michael's family seemed a bit more of a distant and dysfunctional one. I'm in no way suggesting that they cared any less or were left any less broken by what happened, and nor do I have any less sympathy for their loss but it does seem clear that they knew at least to some extent that he was being abused, and yet they never pushed for authorities to step in. Now whether this was out of fear of reprisal of the Watt family, or whatever other reason, the abuse must have been known by them for years, and it was still left to continue without pushing the authorities to do something. I ask you, if you knew about it, could you leave one of your loved ones to that kind of abuse without doing anything? I don't think I could. Despite his many faults, it seems that from an early age Michael was completely failed here at all angles by departments not talking to each other and a basic lack of care or pushing when it must have been clearly known that help and someone stepping in was needed. How very, very tragic. Things need to drastically change, don't they? What do you think, guys? I invite your response as ever. I'm sure that you know where to do so by now. The thread in the Facebook True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group. I want to thank you if you've stuck through with this episode to the end. I can of course understand if you haven't, because it's been a tough one to hear, but I find it important that evil people such as Booth and her friends and the Watt family are vilified publicly for the crimes they commit, and people such as Gemma and Michael are not forgotten, because crimes such as these raise awareness of things such as mate crime, and these are two examples too many that show just how much awareness of this is needed to stamp it out. I hope that the episode raises many points for thought and discussion and that you found it to be an informative one at least. Thank you very much for joining me. I shall be back next week with another case and I invite you to join me again then. Until we next speak, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast and I shall leave you by saying take care guys and be safe and I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.